Hi everyone, and welcome to another ICM STEM Next Collaboration Podcast. My name is Ahmed Zahid. I'm a Senior Clinical Fellow of Adult Intensive Care at the Oxford University Hospitals in the United Kingdom, and an STEM Next Committee member. With all the pleasure, joining me today, two prestigious speakers. Dr. Victoria Mitaksa and Professor Christiana Hartog. Dr. Mitaksa is a critical care and a major trauma consultant at King's College Hospital in London. She is the medical lead for the critical care outreach team of the trust, as well as the end-of-life care ICU lead. She has a PhD in neurosciences and a postgraduate diploma in clinical trials. Victoria has participated in and led a number of international and national studies, mainly around end-of-life in critical care. She is a member of the European Society of Intensive Care Ethics Section, as well as the ESKIM Diversity Task Force. She is a founding member of the Eurocar T Force, which is a multinational group of critical care consultants aiming to accelerate clinical experience, promote research, and define a working framework in the emerging field of immune cell therapy. Welcome, Dr. Mitaxi. Professor Hartog. Hello, thank you. Is a professor of medicine at the Department of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care at Charity Berlin. She has published mainly on sepsis and patient and family-centered care and is currently the chair of the ESKIM Ethics Section. Her interest in palliative care stems from a, from a government-funded clinical trial of end-of-life care in the ICU, which taught her the main dimensions of palliative care. She is also a writing member of the Ethics Section of DV, which is the German Inter Interdisciplinary Association of Intensive Care and emergency physicians who have published guidelines on therapy limitation, non-beneficial care, and triage during the COVID pandemic. Welcome, Professor Hartman. Thank you very much, Ahmed. Today, we will be talking and discussing the recent publication, which is Palliative Care Interventions in Intensive Care Unit Patients. So welcome to the program. First of all, I would really like to congratulate you and appreciate this wonderful and amazing piece of work. I'm pretty sure many intensivists across the globe will be keen to listen to your perspectives and your hard work, as well as your results, as we face this issue as an intensivist in our day-to-day -day practice. So let's start by the first question. What made embark on this systematic review? So thanks very much, Ahmed. Um, to be completely honest, so this started as a uh, this project started slightly differently than uh, what it ended up to be. So uh, myself and uh, several colleagues that are also co-authors were um, interested in the use of advanced directives in ICU. So whether they are of any use. Uh, in intensive care. So simultaneously, there was a call for systematic reviews by the systematic review group 
of ESICM. So we submitted an application via the ethics section. So this proposal was reviewed by Professor Hardog and other members of the section, and that also included Randy Curtis, who is the senior author of the study. And it was suggested that a broader approach was adopted, um, that we should try not only focus on advanced directives, but all uh, aspects of palliative care in ICU. So that's how we came about doing uh, the study. What did you need to identify by this systematic review? We tried to um, um, we tried to ascertain um, what um, what is the place of palliative care in critical in the critical care setting. So we know that palliative care is an emerging specialty, especially in um, you know in North America and maybe Northern Europe. But it did it, it sprung from maybe um, the the concept of of cancer, so outside critical care. So we wanted to see whether there's any place of and what is the place of palliative care in critical care. Professor Hartog. As the head of the ethics section of ESKIM, this systematic review was put forward for, from the ethics section. What made it significant? Uh, well, as uh, Victoria has already said, I think it was significant in that it was a really a joint proposal by Randy Curtis, Rebecca Aslakson, and fortunately, Victoria was there to take on this project. I don't think she was aware of the huge amount of work it would entail, but really all together, we applied for this uh, ESICM trials award, which means funding and uh, structural support. And I think it is significant that the ethics section got selected for this. So it was a really, qualitatively very good um, uh, designed study with an important question and all sections uh, agreed that this should be done. So I think this is really significant. Thank you. You have mentioned now that it, this systematic review has entailed a huge amount of work. What were the difficulties in designing the study? So um, I think Christiane was very right. I, I wasn't 100% aware of the magnitude of, of this, of what I was agreeing to. That's definitely true. Uh, but thank you, Christiane. So um, it, I've, I had never undertaken such a, such a large systematic review with such, um, how to put it, um, not a quantitative topic. So it's very different, I found, uh, and for everybody else who will listen to this, it is very difficult to do a systematic review on something that is um, very quantitative. So whether antibiotics work in, I don't know, food gangrene. But if we're looking at something um, such as palliative care interventions in critical care, then things become quite obscure. So one of the difficulties in thinking about this and designing it, and Christiane is also very right. We're very fortunate to have won the award, which meant that we had the support of a, a librarian who helped us a lot with the search, is the fact that we don't really, at least 
I didn't have in my mind a very clear definition of what constitutes a palliative care intervention in intensive care. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we found studies uh, around ethical consultations in critical care. So we should start to think, is an ethical consultation a palliative care intervention? And so on and so forth. Is every educational intervention a palliative care intervention? So the first massive difficulty was to actually identify our PICO uh, acronym, you know, our, our PICO criteria. So what exactly was the interventions that we wanted to, um, to include? So one, the variability of interventions, but then uh, we came across the outcomes and we very um, consciously didn't uh, put out outcomes of interest. So we didn't identify that we're only going to look at cost or family satisfaction. There was a previous systematic review that looked specifically at cost uh, um, and a, as a quantitative outcome. So we left all the outcomes um, open because we wanted to see really what was out there. But then that meant that our search was really, really, really broad. Um, and we, as I'm sure we can discuss later on, we came back with, um, with a lot of citations. I think the, the last difficulty, third and last difficulty is that COVID came along and that made things a bit more complicated because clinical work became crazy. And this whole endeavor took about three and a half years. I don't think it's meant to take that long. So there you go. Thank you so much. I think measuring something which is not solid in a pandemic was not easy. What were the main findings of this systematic review? So, as I said, we set quite a broad net. So that came back with uh, almost 33,000 citations. So we went through 33,000 abstracts. Um, and after that, we um, ended up with 183 full text articles. And then after review, we uh, concluded that we are going to include 58 publications. So of those 58, we had nine randomized and uh, 49 cohort studies included. Um, and interestingly, and I mean, expectedly, I think the majority of the non-randomized studies um, were scored as high or, or critical risk of bias. So we were, and I know you're going to ask me later, Ahmed, but um, we um, separated the interventions in consultative and integrated. So from the 58 included studies, 48% uh, of them, so almost half of them, reported interventions that attempted a consultative approach to improve palliative care and critical care. And again, 51% of the other half, so half and half, proposed an integrative model. So um, what else did we find? We did find that, as expected, multiple palliative care interventions were identified, evaluating variable and and sometimes overlapping outcomes. So we did find a wide variation in the interventions and a wide variation in the outcome. And that made analysis quite different. Um, 
and the last thing I thought was an interesting finding was the vast majority of studies, and I know Christiana wants to talk about it maybe later on, um, the included studies were mainly from the United States uh, with only a handful from France, Canada, and the UK. What do you think, Professor Hartford, from your perspective, what were the main findings? Yes, well, as I, I think this is what Victoria said is, is the main outcome that uh, palliative care is such a heterogeneous and, and ill-defined concept that um, th there is a multitude, it's a plethora of, of uh, outcomes and of interventions which don't match in a way that you can systematically put them together. So I think this is an important outcome which should inform future trials in that one maybe in Victoria will talk about it and what was the most important lesson from this um, would need to um, first define the essence or the the main goal of, of palliative care. Um, I think this is now apart from smaller findings which are very interesting and which need to be uh, I think still uh, enhanced and focused on and, and maybe follow-up analyses um, I think this is for me the most important outcome from the from this huge work that Victoria and her group did and, and kept on doing over three and a half years so really actually congratulations on this on this huge work so Victoria, you have mentioned in the previous answer that there were two interventions, integrative and consultative. Can you tell us more about the difference between the integrative and consultative interventions? Yes, sure, Ahmed. So this was a dichotomy we made based on previous work by Rebecca Aslickson. So when there was a specialist palliative care consultation service um, that came into the ITU and provided palliative care in ICU or was involved in improving palliative care in ICU, like educators, that kind of model of provision, we categorized as a consultative model, as like an outside model. In contrast, where the palliative care principles, the palliative care processes were incorporated as part of the routine practice of ICU clinicians, then that model of provision, um, that closed model, let's say, we termed or we use the term integrative model. When there was a combination of these approaches, some people term this as a mixed model. However, we chose when we saw a mixed model for ease of comparison to uh, uh, opt this, to, to name this as a consultative model. So these are the two models. So if I tell you a little bit about what we saw when we analyzed the outcomes of those two types of interventions, we found that the consultative model appeared to have a more significant impact on ICU length of stay. But it wasn't very clear. So 
about 25% of the studies, we found that uh, applying a consultative model statistically uh, significantly uh, statistically uh, reduced the ICU length of stay. But there was also about an 11% that this the same kind of model increased ICU length of stay. So yes, the consultative model had an impact on ICU length of stay, but to which direction, it wasn't very clear. Similarly, hospital length of stay, trialing a consultative model, we found that the hospital length of stay was decreased in about 14% of the study, so 20% uh, uh, of the study, as opposed to about 14% with an integrated model. So for a length of stay, getting uh, an outside specialist team seemed to have an effect, but not very clear to which direction. So the consultative model was also associated with a greater number of decisions for limitation of life-sustaining treatment and of DNA CPR orders. So more the consultative model than the integrative one. However, nurse satisfaction, which was a different outcome, appeared greater after integrative interventions. And I guess that's probably because it was the same team that uh, provided an intervention towards increasing satisfaction to the nurses, and maybe that's why um, that provided better outcomes. So these, these are the two distinctions between, these are the distinctions between the two types and some relative outcomes from the study. Thank you. Mentioning that, that it was a heterogeneous, I would say, uh, pattern in this systematic review. What came out of this systematic review that was really un unexpected and surprised you? The majority of studies, as you already said, came indeed from, from North America, I mean, from, from the US. But this was something that Randy Curtis had suspected and which really confirms that Europe needs to catch up. So this is really a noteworthy finding. On the other hand, uh, I must say we do have different healthcare systems and different cultures. So it is important that we do more work to find out about how palliative care works and how it works best in European countries because clearly one size does not fit all. And um, we, we, I'm, I'm sure we cannot just sort of uh, take over the, the, the US care model. Uh, but this, again, is not really surprising, but it's good now to have the hard data so we can push for more uh, studies and interventions. What about you, Dr. Metaxa? So, yeah, what surprised so, you? Yes, so I think definitely the almost complete lack of studies coming from Southern Europe, where I'm originally from. Um, uh, but, but also the fact that, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about um, outcomes and domains later on, that outcomes pertaining uh, around continuity of care or provision of spiritual support um, that uh, are important outcomes in end-of-life and palliative care. We didn't find any studies that had that as an outcome. So we were discussing this with Christiane and the rest of the group 
I think that's astonishing because palliative care, a big part of the discipline um, is around controlling symptoms. And I mean, that is definitely a sign of how different and specialized is the implementation of palliative care in critical care. So there were no studies discussing management of symptoms. And another surprising finding, but we've mentioned this many times now, is the vast variability of interventional outcomes. So every study got, you know, got a different outcome uh, and a slightly different intervention and matched them together. So in the study, there were two different classification for care. Can you tell us the difference between the Robert Wood Johnson end-of-life care domains and the new implemented classification of care in the systematic review? And how will this have an impact on our future research? So yes, I think that's a, that's a, a very good question. So initially when we were designing uh, the systematic review, we again um, thought that we would also use what Randy um, and Rebecca used in, uh, in different, uh, in their own studies previously, which is the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation criteria of end-of-life care. And they are, um, they are uh, seven domains uh, and interventions fall into this, uh, in these domains. And there's also uh, markers of, 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 um, of quality. So under the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation domains, you have patient and family said decision-making, you have support for family and patients, you have communication, continuity of care, spiritual support, symptom management, and support for ICU clinicians. So we started to um, try and categorize our interventions under those domains, but it was very clear quite quickly that those domains are, are quite broad. And of course, they're end-of-life domains. They're not palliative care domains, which is something broader. So we undertaken an a thematic analysis and came up with our own uh, five uh, domains or types of interventions, which are communication interventions, ethics consultations, educational interventions, and advanced care planning. And those four were interventions mainly undertaken by ICU staff. And a fifth one, which is a palliative care team involvement, when a specialist team was asked to consult. We did think, we did find that uh, using this new intervention, it was much more pragmatic and practical. So we do hope that when further research is undertaken, then the interventions can be categorized under those new domains to make, to make comparisons between studies better and easier. Thank you, that was really helpful. You have mentioned different outcomes during your the podcast. What were the major outcomes measured in this systematic review? They were the four more most frequently used outcomes were ICU and hospital length of stay, 
they were in that they were um, quoted about in about 60% of the studies. Um, the number of decisions to limit life sustaining treatment, including DNA CPR orders, and about 38%, and mortality, so either ICU or hospital mortality, and about 26% um, of, uh, of the studies included. So we then tried to make some associations between those outcomes and, and interventions. And I mean, I can very briefly tell you that, for example, we found that um, communication interventions, when there was a communication team or a facilitator, were, was, were for example, associated with a reduction in length of stay. Um, that um, uh, complex educational interventions that were aimed at ICU staff um, reported a uh, increase in discussions around um, life-sustaining treatments and their limitations and DNA CPR um, orders. And specifically about mortality, we didn't really have a signal because um, some of them, some interventions showed an increase in hospital mortality and almost half of them showed a reduction. Um, so we didn't really find a, a good signal, good signal there. From a limitations perspective, can you tell us more about the limitations of this systematic review? I think um, Christiane mentioned the importance about of the non-representation of you know almost uh, more than half of the world in the systematic review so there's a very strong signal from north america well united states canada france and maybe the uk but nothing else so that's a limitation so as christiana was saying i'm not sure that whatever comes out of the systematic review you can just take and implement in any healthcare system um, and the second limitation, I think, is because of the whole heterogeneity, we couldn't perform a meta-analysis. So we couldn't have like a more quantitative um, analysis because studies with similar outcomes had different interventions that couldn't be pulled together, whereas studies with similar interventions reported very, difficult, very different outcomes. So we didn't have, we didn't perform a meta-analysis. From a future perspective, what will you bring forward and what are the future research directions in this field? Yes, thank you for that. And um, Christiane alluded to that uh, a bit earlier on. I think the vast variability really constricts us in, in making um, conclusions. So I think it would be paramount to find common ground around what constitutes a palliative care intervention in ITU? What are the most common interventions in this field? Um, and those interventions could be also a focus for training for our younger intensivists and also which outcomes should we focus on? So which outcomes should future research in the field focus on? It will be very good to do that. And the only way to do this, I think, is collaborating between different societies. And finally, from your perspective, Domitaxa, Professor Hartog, how can we address the gap in the knowledge and experience of ICU clinicians 
in regards to end-of-life care and palliation? I think I would like to answer that um, because it's part of the, I think the gap in training and education is uh, uh, grounded in the fact that there's so little consensus about the content and the effect of palliative care in the ICU. And I, of course, speak uh, predominantly for maybe uh, German, uh, the German culture, but in my country, for instance, uh, mentioning palliative is the same as speaking of dying patients. So palliative is seen as something that is restricted to the patient who is dying, which uh, is not actually true. Palliative care is uh, should accompany uh, regular uh, or, or, or daily intensive care focused on organ replacement and organ uh, support. Uh, but this needs to be kind of more uh, uh, sharpened. The there, there needs to be more recognition of what palliative care can do and why patients and families and actually clinicians need palliative care to to complement to, to 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 enrich the daily care that they that they do. So. Um, arriving at a consensus, I think, would be a good first step. And then, of course, we do need more education and training in knowledge and skills which are needed to provide the actual palliative care and, of course, end-of-life care in the ICU. And there's a big gap in training and here Victoria's review can can help us to show the scope of what needs to be addressed. So I think communication, ethical, medical legal knowledge, and the practicalities of palliative and end-of-life care, which which can also include such things as you know, Deborah Cook's Three Wishes project in, in Canada, which is tremendously inspiring, but it probably wouldn't fulfill the classical criteria of, of palliative care, maybe, which you would look for in a systematic review. But these all and including, which is very important, symptom management, and last but not least, advanced care planning for patient and proxies. Um, all these should become more part of uh, the regular clinical training and skills training for ICU clinicians, physicians and nurses alike, I think. What do you think, Dr. McTaxter? No, I couldn't agree with more. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I think what Christiane is describing is what is maybe missing from many of the training we receive, which is the primary palliative care. I think every, I agree, every every intensive care doctor should have the basic primary palliative care skills. It goes with our, it should go with our job. Um, so yes, exactly as Christian's saying, just there are projects that I'm sure we didn't include because it was very unclear what was palliative and what is not. So I can only second what Christian said.
Thank you again, Dr. Metaxa, Professor Hatchell, for the important contribution to the program. It was really good and amazing to meet you and discuss with you this important Thank you again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you for the invitation and goodbye.